We are in Proverbs 24, and once again, the uh, word fool shows up a lot, so I wanted to make just a few short comments, uh, something similar to what I made a couple weeks ago. I want to begin by saying that a fool causes problems for everyone around him. His foolishness often overshadows what sensibleness he may have, so that it's as if he has no sense. And the threat to those around a fool is so great that Proverbs chapter 17, verse 12 says, It is better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool headed off to do something foolish. Imagine that. It is better to meet a bear robbed of its cubs. Now that bear would be pretty angry, probably go after the next thing it sees. It's better to do that than to meet a fool uh, who is headed off to do something foolish. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 23 tells us that to a fool, to do something foolish is to do something fun and exciting. They see that as a really great moment in their life. For the fool, this kind of fun and excitement includes quarreling in ways that damage relationships, Proverbs 18.6, and venting their anger without concern for the damage it does, Proverbs 29.11. And Proverbs goes on to say that to be friends with a fool is to set yourself up for unnecessary trouble. Proverbs 13, 20. Now, one of the great challenges in dealing with a fool is when he or she is a member of your own family. When they are a family member, it becomes much harder to distance yourself from them. And it becomes impossible to avoid the suffering brought into your family by them. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, Proverbs 17, 21, and Proverbs 19, verse 13 say that a foolish child is a source of disappointment, sorrow, and trouble for his parents. And though a fool's parents love him, and I hope they do, and want what is best for him, Proverbs 15, 20 says, that the fool's behavior and treatment of his parents shows that he despises them. So the point is, a fool causes problems for everyone around him and sadly does so without remorse. All right, Proverbs chapter 24. We uh, want to take a look at this. There's some... Good thoughts in it, just like there is in all the Proverbs. Who wants to go first? All right, I will. Uh, I I did want to go first anyway. Um, (laughs) Verses 3 and 4. By wisdom a house is built, and by understanding it is established. And by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. So when I read these two verses, this proverb, 
I think of this, given all the challenges related to marriage and family, and it's full of challenges, it requires wisdom to build a well-constructed family that is safe, loving, community-minded, and to me that is an essential part of family life, that we are all community-minded, that we think of the good of the family, and we're not just living separate individual lives. So it takes wisdom to build a well-constructed family that is safe, safe for everyone, loving, community-minded, well-mannered. My mother worked at that, did a good job. Uh, It may not look like that to you, but I know how to be well-mannered. Educated and pleasant for all of the members. Although wisdom is required to build such a home, the proverb goes on to say that understanding is required to make it stable, to make it unshakable, to make it secure and firmly fixed so that the relationships are not easily damaged or destabilized. This kind of understanding includes understanding each other's hopes and fears, understanding each other's likes and dislikes, understanding each other's personality type, understanding each other's gifts and abilities, understanding each other's way of thinking. How does this person think? How does that person think? What are the differences? And understanding each other's beliefs and values. To understand those things takes effort, it takes listening, it takes asking good questions, it takes time. Uh, It takes a willingness to uh, investigate in good and healthy ways. It takes effort to observe how the people around you and your family are living, what they're doing, what are the common things they do, what are the habits, uh, why aren't they getting certain messages. Understanding these kinds of things is important. But it's also important to understand why the family is or should be committed to its beliefs, values, traditions, and practices. My guess is each family represented in this room has its own traditions. Uh, I grew up with certain traditions, and when I married Barbie, she had different traditions. And sad to say, in the early years of marriage, and I've confessed this to her a number of times, I did not support her family of origin traditions. One specifically was going to her uh, the Bay City for Christmas. To me, going to a Christmas gathering of like 70 to 80 people was just something I wanted nothing to do with. Uh, I was used to growing up in a home where Christmas was our family of five. Uh, all the relatives lived outside of Detroit, too far away to travel to our my growing up home to have Christmas with us. I think it happened maybe twice in my life that family members came. So we had Christmas alone, just the five of us, and it was a nice, quiet, uh, safe affair. And uh, 70 plus people, I mean, that was just beyond my imagination of anything healthy or good. But that was her traditions, and it took me too many years to understand that it was valuable to her, just like my traditions were valuable to me. Am I willing to understand the traditions 
that come into our family via marriage. And then we need to understand the roles and responsibilities of each member. What is What are each of us supposed to do, and why should we be doing that? And this isn't just for one person in the family to understand all this. We should help all the family members understand this. Uh, to me, uh, at least I made the effort, whether they learned this or not, their own families would have to confirm, but uh, I tried to instill in the boys the idea that uh, if mom made the meal, that wasn't exactly a fun thing for her to do. So we should clean up the meal. It doesn't have to be fun, but it's something we should do. And if it is fun, the fun is in doing it together. We can talk, we can tell jokes, we can tell stories, but we're doing it together. And that's the part that's fun. I never wanted to imply to them that the work was fun. To me, that's a bit unrealistic. Um, sometimes we do want to infer that to our kids. Uh, it's not a realistic message, in my opinion. So I didn't want to infer that, but I did want to instill in them the idea that if mom's role was to make the dinner, it should be our role to uh, clean it up. So understanding those kind of things, what is each person's responsibility? And then I think understanding the value of community. To me, uh, to have a home that is built and established, every member needs to understand the idea of community. We're in this together, and a community that works together, that functions together, that looks out for each other's good, is a good community to be part of. Um, but it has to be taught. We have to understand the value of it, and we have to be willing to, to teach that. So the right use of knowledge, which is instruction or continued learning or using what has been learned appropriately, the right use of knowledge fills a home with the precious and pleasant riches of mutually loving, mutually trusting, mutually respectful, meaningful relationships. You don't know, you'd have to ask the boys, how they really see each other. I would say in their younger years, we didn't have mutually much of anything other than we were in the, all in the same house. Uh, it wasn't that they didn't get along most of the time, but then there were times when they didn't get along at all. And uh, I think as they got older, for some of them, uh, getting along was uh, harder work than avoiding. But now that they're older, uh, by the way, if you try to teach them when they're younger, when they're old, they may not depart from that. That's uh, hope for. Uh, now that they're older, they seem to get along. They seem to have mutual, and that to me is worth the effort of putting in uh, the kind of knowledge, the kind of instruction and teaching and training. And I want to conclude this with, to me, in the end, God's word is the most important source for wisdom when it comes to building a home. What does God's word say about my responsibility as a husband to my wife and to our children? And will I love her as Christ loves the church? Will I raise the children in a way that doesn't frustrate them or make them angry uh, or turn them uh, to, towards bitterness? Um, so the word of God to me is very essential if we are going to build uh, a good home. And that's my take on verses 3 and 4. Somebody else.
Well, uh, at uh, verse 10, uh, there's, uh, if, if you, this translation, if you falter in the time of trouble, your strength is small. I think the New American Standard is if you are slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. Uh, most translations have something with faint, uh, you know, if you faint in the time of trouble or the day of distress, uh, your strength is small or your strength, strength is diminished. Uh, I, this, this proverb I noticed years ago and I always wondered where did the comma actually belong? I'm pretty sure there's no comma in the Hebrew. And, uh, it struck me that if you move the comma, it, it changes the meaning of the, of the proverb. Uh, if you falter, comma, in the time of trouble, your strength is small. Or if you falter in the time of trouble, comma, your strength is small. Uh, it, it's two different things. If you uh, have a habit of faltering, or as uh, I think the New American Standard says slack, uh, another one says lose courage, uh, faint. If you do that as a regular thing, then when the day of trouble or distress or trial comes, you'll you'll have uh, little strength to deal with it, uh, which is one meaning of it, uh, which would uh, definitely promote the idea of uh, you know being prepared ahead of time, making preparations, uh, being diligent during the normal times when it doesn't seem as important, <laughs> uh, so that when it when it, there is a hard time, we're ready for it. But at the same time, if the commas that uh, were probably more, most, I think just about every translation I saw puts it, if you falter in the time of trouble or faint in the time of trouble, your strength is small. That's uh, another thing is, you know, when that day comes, don't, you know, it's going to be hard. Don't give up, right? If you give up or if you decide that, you know, oh, this is too hard, you're going to run out of the strength you need a lot sooner uh, than otherwise. Anyway, the, uh, the, that was that that proverb had always uh, caught my attention. Probably more just considering where does the comma really belong? What was their intention? Yeah, possibly uh, just to add two things. Would somebody look up Isaiah forty? In fact, Mark, you look up Isaiah forty twenty-eight to thirty-one since you took that one. Isaiah. Um, if wherever you put the comma, in a way, if you fail to use the strength you have then you will foolishly limit what you're able to do. And too often, when life gets really hard, stress comes, uh, we want to give up. We want to back off. Uh, in our culture today, discouragement and depression is widespread. But if we would use the strength we have, uh, many years ago, Barbie and I were in a situation, and we uh, visited a person, and he had been through a really difficult time. He was Jewish. Um, this would have been over 50 years ago. Uh, he was Jewish and uh, had uh, experienced some of the Holocaust, and he hadn't given up. And he said to us, don't give up. Stick with this. You get through it. Life will turn out okay. Those are some of the wisest words at that point in my life I had heard. And it's true, yeah. If we would use the strength we have, the strength we have, then help us as it ought to. Uh, go ahead, Mark. 
By the way, this is, uh, to me, a good scripture of reminder to uh, trust in God. 28 through 30? 28 through 31. Haven't you known, haven't you heard, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, doesn't faint. He isn't weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. He increases the strength of him who has no might. Even the youths faint and get weary, and the young men utterly fail. But those who wait for Yahweh will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Mm -hmm. Give us more as the burdens grow. Someone else. Thanks, Mark. I was looking at uh, Proverbs uh, 24 1, where it says, Do not envy the wicked, do not desire their company, for their hearts plot violence, their lips talk about making trouble. It's interesting the idea of don't desire the company of the wicked and how the Bible defines wickedness. That um, it reminds me of the we just recently reading in Luke where Jesus was invited to the home of Pharisees and he just let him have it. Um, they made a comment about how he didn't wash his hands in the ceremony or something to the effect, and he just basically just went off. Well, it looks like he just went off on him. Um, and is he like you know when he's the law? When you say he's your friend, too, and you. <laughs> it's like, I don't know what a tone of voice he had in there, but it was very clear that he was not trying to be their friend. And uh, he had he had no interest in uh, their company or desiring their approval or anything like that uh, related to them. And I wonder, you know, it's, it's interesting, the idea that, you know, we want, you know, we want to be like Jesus. We want to be loving and gentle and kind. And there's also mixed in that the idea that there's certain people that we don't want to be our friends. Um, not that we would be cruel or unkind. Obviously, he was rebuking them for sins and his desire was to see the repentance. But the idea that um, we're, we, we neither envy the wicked nor, or, nor do we want them to think well of us. Um, understanding um, that, you know, the things, you know, their hearts plot violence and their lips talk about making trouble, that the things they talk about are are not going to be good things for us to be meditating on or thinking about. Uh, the things they're thinking about are um, things that we shouldn't be thinking about. Um, I guess it's just kind of that idea that, um, you know, not desiring the company of some people. Uh, New American Standard starts out with, do not be envious of evil men. Um, And to take nothing away from that, I suspect that young people are pretty much the same. And it is very easy when you're young to envy what uh, the rich and famous have um, and and to want some of that for yourself. And this is a good proverb that uh, warns against that. And since you did it, uh, Tim, look up Proverbs 23, 6, and 7. It's just a chapter back in your phone. Um, Proverbs 23, verses 6 and 7. 
Yet do not eat the food of a begrudging host. Do not crave his delicacies. For he is the kind of person who is always thinking about the cost. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Right. He's not really your friend. He's not really thinking about you. Right. He's yeah. thinking about himself. Right. But it's so easy to think, wow, this is great to be here. Party. Yes. Someone else? For Anna's sake, I'll just go now. Um, I also, can I go back to Proverbs 24.10 for a second? Oh, yes. Um, I, I appreciated Mark's points very much, but that was that verse was a gift to me recently when I was looking for, in Dave's words, a sensible response to a fear of failure. That this sort of gave me that idea to go, well, that didn't seem to go well. You know, teach me what I need to learn to be more yours. I failed in the day of trouble. I must not be strong enough. Like, it gave me a, an answer for the times that I fail. There's a lack of strength there, um, strength of character, strength of dependent, leaning on God, trying to do my own strength, whatever it might be. So it just sort of gave me a gift. Um, and then I looked up different versions. If you show yourself lacking courage on the day of distress, your strength is meager. If you fall through the time of trouble, how small is your strength? If you fail under pressure, your strength is so small. Um, so I really, I, I thought that then a reasonable, sensible response to failure was, I'm not trying to be strong enough, pray for strength, the opportunity to grow stronger. That's one I don't like. Opportunity to grow stronger by the, the little ways of breaking down the, that building, breaking building process, little failures and build on it, build through reps, not a magic wand, that sort of thing. Um, and then I'm just going to skip around to a couple of the others. Um, Proverbs 24, 13 to 14. My son, eat honey, for it is good. Yes, the honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Know that wisdom is the same for your soul. If you find it, then there will be a future, and your hope will not be cut off. That's because of my particular struggles in life. It's just kind of cool to see that God does want us to enjoy food. Honey is maybe not my friend particularly, but that God had that idea. But it also reminded me of the, the second part of it, which is the bigger part, of course, is, you know, I, I, mean, I told you guys, I, mean, I told you my story. You know, I didn't go to, to look for help. Because I was overweight, I went to look for help because I couldn't stand who I was. The, the obesity was just a symptom. So this is just sort of, again, the things that speak to truth. I needed the wisdom for my soul way more than I needed the, the sweetness. Um, so, and then just, so just the, the truth of that, the wis- that wisdom um, is, is good, is sweet, is the hope, um, all that sort of thing. And that's what the future is in. Um, it, it's just so exactly what I needed. Um, Proverbs 24, uh, no, I'm not going to go that one, um, but the Proverbs 24, 33 to 34, um, I, I, I passed by the field of the way, a lazy one, by the vineyard of a person lacking sense, and behold, it was completely overgrown with wind, with weeds. Its surface was covered with weeds, and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it, and I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. There are reasons why that doesn't relate to me, but then your poverty will come like a drifter and your need like an armed man. You know, I have um, had certain false beliefs, ingrained ideas, whatever they are, that I didn't recognize it, but I wasn't willing to fight them. I just was willing to try to avoid them. I was willing to try to make excuses for them, but I wasn't, I didn't see that it was mine to say no to my own thinking. Um, and this, this is what happens. You know, I, I would just try to avoid it or try to whatever. And, and instead of fighting it, instead of the hard work of actually like the putting off and the putting on the, um, the being transformed by the learning of the mind without that, then it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't take much for sin to take root. So that was what 
I, I just really thought those were good verses to apply to fighting sin more than like your day-to-day work, not that you want to do this. Yeah, thanks. Uh, well, since we were, since uh, Marie read those last verses in Proverbs, uh, I looked up uh, a few things. Uh, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek version, has uh, like it's very similar, but it says it a little differently, which I found uh, interesting. It says a foolish man is like a farm, and a senseless man is like a vineyard. If you let him alone, he will altogether remain barren and covered with weeds. And he becomes destitute, and his stone walls are broken down. Afterwards, I reflected, I looked that I might receive instruction. The sluggard says, I slumber a little, and I sleep a little, and for a little while I fold my arms across my breast. But if you do this, your poverty will come speedily, and your lack like a swift courier. Uh, anyway, I just I thought that uh, gave a it's the same basically saying the same thing, but it just provided a slightly different picture. Yeah, uh, and it's very it's also similar. The ending is very similar to uh, what's spoken in Proverbs six, where it starts out differently. Go to the ant, uh, you sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Uh, and then uh, it also reminded me of a quote from uh, Grover Cleveland, of all things. Uh, I found this, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago, the uh, whitehouse.gov has, you know, short things about the presidents, and I don't know why I looked up Grover Cleveland a while back, but I was looking up various presidents, and it was interesting, one of the things uh, it says is, uh, Cleveland vigorously pursued a policy barring special favors to any economic group. At one point, and, and Cleveland was a president in the later 1800s. Uh, he was the first Democratic president after the Civil War, uh, which, and it was like 20-some years after the Civil War. Uh, he vetoed a bill to appropriate $10,000 to, to distribute seed grain among drought-stricken farmers in Texas. And he wrote about it. He said, federal aid in such cases encourages the expectation of paternal care on the part of the government and weakens the sturdiness of our national character. <laughs> anyway, I just thought, like, huh, it seemed like he had an idea of that uh, proverb that, you know, if, if uh, people lose their their motivation for industry, for diligence, for hard work, that uh, it doesn't ultimately result in something good in the long run. Whether he made the right decision there, I don't know. But uh, he certainly uh, had some view of... Uh, of the Proverbs that uh, the sluggard uh, ultimately end up in poverty and destitution. Uh, someone else? Um, after you uh, responded to my email, you brought up Romans 12, <coughs> um, Proverbs, excuse me, uh, Proverbs 17 and 18 just uh, leapt out at me. I thought it brought, brought another layer to that. It says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, so the Lord will see it and be displeased and turn his anger away from him. I thought that was <laughs> like taking it to another level um, when it talks about uh, 
never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Yeah. Respect what is right. Uh, never take your own revenge. Um, it's it's almost in a sense, <clears throat> it's like uh, it's a suggestion. It's kind of like you know, this is something you really should do. This is what I'd like you to do. But then the Proverbs, it says, uh, and if you don't do that, now I'm angry at you. I was angry at them, but now because of your actions, I'm angry at you. I just thought that was... Now, since you took that one, you got your uh, Bible back open real quick. Uh, you take Matthew five forty-three to 48. And this is uh, a New Testament, quoted in the New Testament. Who will take Proverbs 25, 21 to 22? All right, Kim? Um, just... Keep this in mind as we read these two scriptures. When you rejoice over bad things happening to bad people, it's a failure of love. Love seeks the good, not the harm. When we turn a blind eye to the number of younger, especially younger people, say 50 and below, being killed in the Middle East. We are turning a blind eye to anyone who is not yet a believer losing the opportunity to become a believer. Life is ended. How would love be content with that? Peter writes that God has put off the return of Christ because he wants more people to come. It's not a failure to keep his word. It's a desire for more people to come to repentance. So when we rejoice that bad things are happening to bad people, to me it's a failure of love. And I gave you a more extreme example, but you have the opportunity in the coming week to think about lesser extreme examples. It's also a rejection of compassion and mercy. By the way, blessed are the merciful, for they shall... Receive mercy. Yes, if we are glad for or want to receive mercy, should we not be extending mercy to others? It is way too easy to want a bad person to get their due. If God operated that way, I know I would have long since been dead and gotten far more than I've ever gotten. God has been merciful and compassionate. And the third thing it does, it's an abandonment of godliness. You can't be godly and want bad things to happen to bad people. It's just against godliness. All right, Bill, you got it. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of, of your Father who is in heaven. So what might we pray? Should we pray that God uh, destroys them, gets justice, wreaks justice on them? Or what if we prayed for their salvation? What if we prayed for them to come to their senses? What if we prayed that they would stop harming other people? Now keep reading. Where he causes his son to rise... Anyhow, okay, so he causes the sun to rise on the righteous and unrighteous alike. So start at verse 46. What does that say? 
For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Yes. Wanting good for good people? There's nothing great about that. Everybody does that. Wanting good for bad people? That's godliness. That's being like God himself. All right, Proverbs 25, 21 to 22. You'll... If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he is thirsty, give him water to drink. Doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. The Lord will reward you. If you're wondering where Paul got that quote in Romans chapter 12, that's where he got it from. <laughs> Proverbs 25. All right, someone else. Just a couple more verses from that one. Proverbs 17, 5. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. Yes. He who rejoices, calamity will not go unpunished. And then um, thinking about Job, um, when he was listing off things of um, why he was okay, so to speak, he says he had not rejoiced when his enemy was killed, nor when bad happened to him. He did not rejoice. And then Obadiah says, do not gloat um, over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Just how much, um, or it tells me how much God says, leave that to me, my dealings with them. Um, I told you that I'll take care of those who aren't doing well. You do what you need to do, such as praying for them. He'll take care of it in the end. It will work out. <laughs> Was somebody else going to respond to that one? Yeah, uh, there's a story in Second Samuel where David's fleeing from Absalom, and uh, Shimei is, comes out and cursing David and throwing stones and whatever else. And David uses that proverb, uh, not in those exact words, but uses the idea of that proverb uh, to guide his own actions. But but instead of him being the one rejoicing over his enemy falling, he's the enemy who's fallen. And uh, he says, because uh, Abishai wanted to, you know, hey, you want me to go uh, put a spear through his, his heart? And David says, uh, to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my son who came out of my bowels seeks my life. How much more this Benjamite now? Leave him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has invited him. It may be that Yahweh will look on the wrong done to me, and that Yahweh will repay me good for the cursing of me today. Right? So in other words, maybe maybe God will turn away his wrath from me because of this guy's turning his wrath towards me. <clears throat> Good story, thanks. Anybody else? Another proverb? I also did the same section that you did. Um, and I list of the house is built, my understanding is established, the knowledge its rooms are built with every precious and beautiful treasure. You know, speaking about um, we did a study of the excellent life um, years ago and in that book there is um, a chart and um, on the left side you write down like what your thoughts are or maybe something that you believe to be true 
And then on the right side, you write down what God says, the scripture, and you compare the two. And it's just a way of like, um, a way of renewing your mind or washing it clean from, from your thoughts. And so working in ourselves and our thought life, um, it's a way to build our house with wisdom. Um, and then with understanding, asking questions like, could the other person in your family be right? Like sometimes we just think, of course we're right or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like it seems like maybe we're right in our mind, but sometimes we're not considering like maybe a whole picture of it or other details or. I'm not just talking about things that are obvious, but things that are like more general or that, or maybe there's a level of right that needs to be considered. And then another thing that really, really helped me is that once um, I was having a hard time understanding theory, something, and we went back to, and we're hanging out with his family. And his whole family did it all the same things that Gary does. And I was just watching in wonderment. It was like, oh, now I get it. I understand what's happening now. Um, and so just realizing family of origin and that how they do their culture and like what's important to them and different things like that, it just helped me with. Um, you know, overall relationship in our home. And um, and another thing was that um, sometimes I wondered about, like, something that Gary would do. Um, and it occurred to me that he was the same in every setting. So this thing that I considered to be, like, the thing that attracted to me the most like a very, very good trait if you stick it in a completely different setting, then maybe I was a little bit uncomfortable or something. And so, like, this is what I mean by understanding, like, just taking some time to understand that, you know, well, people are people, and we, we can't be perfect in every scenario. Um, and that it's really actually a good trait. I just need to learn adapt to the different settings. Another one was like if there's something that comes up to talk to God about it first before talking it out, you know, so that his ideas can renew. Renew like what I'm thinking about and we can also renew with our minds with uh, scripture songs. Um, and then just basic truths like treating others like how we want to be treated builds a huge um, in building a, a, a good household. And then um, I was then thinking opposites. And I've been thinking about this even before I studied the Proverbs about how what would my foundation be like if I never met Jesus, if the high school principal never led that Bible study that we went to? I mean, maybe I would have met him somewhere else, but um, 
or if the high school principal hadn't come up to me in the hallway and taught me different things at different times. Um, it, it would be, I can just picture my former self and what I might have done in a family setting or, you know, without God's input, without God's light shining in the darkness, without new life in Christ. Because Jesus paid it all, and all Him I owe. But it completely changed my my um, building of my home and like what we did with our kids. Um, it's it's still so amazing to me. And then with the knowledge, um, its rooms are filled with every precious and beautiful treasure. I, I guess I'm just re-explaining um, the knowledge of God and people with their psychologies and experiences and personalities. These are all good things to add into your basket. And knowledge of this word, including humility, recognizing that if Jesus could save me and change me, he could do it with anyone. And so to have that kind of merciful grace. So just kind of like writing down some of these basic ideas and reminding ourselves of them um, helps to build the house, I guess. I... No, thank you. Very good. Appreciate that. Uh, one example comes to mind, and then we should end because it's almost a quarter to. I uh, grew up in a home um, with a mom that was a real perfectionist and quite compulsive. And I slept in a bed where the sheets were tucked in tight on either side. So it was like a cocoon, and I would get into this bed. And that was like a very comfortable place. And when I went off to Michigan State, I would actually lean over the side of my bed and tuck the sheets in myself and the blankets in myself. So my bed was nice and tight. The blankets were tight over me. And then I married Barbie, who apparently grew up in a different setting, she just lets the sheets and blankets hang on either side of the bed, and it was like, you know, you can't do this. <laughs> so which way is right, you know? I mean, does the toilet paper go this way or go that way? Um, yeah, which way is right, and uh, what am I willing to do? One of the things that God used to help me work this out in my own mind was the phrase, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, I grew up hearing that phrase. Uh, which means uh, if you get the job done, that's what really matters. There's more than one way to do it. Of course, I grew up believing it should be done my way because I knew the right way. And if that's, there's a right way, then it should be done that way. At figuring out that there's more than one way to do the same thing uh, was very helpful. So, yes, there is right and wrong. There is no doubt about that. But sometimes our idea of right is only our, what we're accustomed to, not necessarily right or wrong. And something can be done a different way, and it's still done well. It gets the job done. Um, so that was, you know, thanks. Thanks so much. All right, thank you so much for all of your efforts with the Proverbs. Again, I do appreciate your work, and I'm grateful for it. I do want to uh, give public thanks to Anna for carrying around the microphone. I do really appreciate that.